0: We are in a very churched area. We have conversations about that regularly. Even in very churched areas, uh, the numbers, if I'm not mistaken right now, are a consistent attending church member comes about twice a month. So you can do the own math in your head and heart if you need to. Uh, What we've learned in regard to church attendance and church membership is we also are a people who will flee flee from things. Well, people leave churches for various reasons. Uh, it's so different than it was in the Bible. That's what they're dealing with in the book of First John. There are a group of people who have left the church because they don't agree with John who wrote the letter of First John, right? and they would leave church for... Reasons in the Bible that were so different than the way we do now. In our world, people leave churches because your church doesn't offer stuff. You don't have the children's ministry that we want, or you don't see missions the way that we want. It's a very heliocentric approach to church. Uh, in the Bible, people would leave churches because they just didn't believe the same stuff. If you left the church, you were saying, hey, I, I don't. I no longer believe that about the person... Of Jesus, I think there are really a couple of primary reasons for people to leave churches. One would be heresy, the, another would be distance. Hopefully, you're not getting heresy, and I hope you're not moving either. But whenever there is a change in leadership, you will actually see a shift in the way that people see their the sense of belonging to a congregation. When I got here, I basically handed out Disney fast passes to people. That's just kind of how it worked. And, and when I was in Chattanooga, we had one gentleman who left a church that I was at, and, and we interviewed his friends. A numerous amount of octogenarians, and they, he had let all of them know that he was leaving our church because we talked about love too much. He would hate First John. In the book of First John, you see love mentioned regularly. And in the verses that we're in today, he's going to talk about love. He'll reference it. 27 times. Love is the theme. Love is supreme. Love is central to what's happening here. So if you'll join me in the text, First John chapter 4, verse 11. This is really part two of a mega-sermon, but not to be confused with a mega-church. But picking up in verse 11. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way... We also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God remains in us and His love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in Him and He in us. He has given us a spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent His Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are... We so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear. Your Bible may read casts out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, "I love God," and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and his sister. As as we look at this text today, our central idea, if we're going to pursue anything, is that loved people love people. If we are going to say to the world that we are loved by God then we have to love people for God's sake that extends to other things uh, uh, people who have uh, received mercy display mercy people who have uh, been reciprocants of compassion are compassionate Loved people love people and as we look at the text we're going to look at a few things in regard to that one is 11 and 12 where is that love from where is it from uh, what does love do? And, and finally, we'll say, who is love for? Where is love from? What does love do? And who is love for? This is how this passage kind of breaks down for us as we look at the idea of what it means for loved people to love people. The word where there may not even be the best word because where is ambiguous. It communicates to us the, a place, a notion of where we're going and why we're going there and, and the and. The idea that there is a place that you go. And while we do see that, we have to be very consistent to see that God is a who. But we can use these almost interchangeably. The other night, uh, it was Halloween night. We were lighting the night as a church over in the compound off, uh, in my neighborhood, Creekside. We had numerous houses. We had my house, which was not an official grace house, which is kind of hurtful, but we worked through it. And Hope made red beans and rice. People came over to eat red beans and rice. I stopped by the Smith's house, and Michelle lets us know that she loves red beans and rice. So. I took red beans and rice down to her. I then decided to walk a loop around the neighborhood. And it hit me in the middle of that that I was a grown man walking by himself in the midst of all this trick or treating, which was off-putting. But as I revisited the idea of dropping that off at Michelle's house, it it hit me. Now, you could say, well, where where is the red beans and rice from? Well, we know where it's from. It's from hope. But hope is the who. When we talk about love in this passage, what we're seeing is, who is it from? God offers love to us. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must love one another. Well, if we're going to ask about the way there, what way does God love? Well, I don't have to define that for you because God already has. In verses 9 and 10, it says this, God's love was revealed to us in this way. God sent his son, his one and only son, into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the atoning or the at wanting sacrifice for our sin. Every aspect of the Christian faith finds basis in this. Messiah Jesus, Savior Jesus, Christ Jesus, has revealed himself to us to be loved... In the flesh. And when you deal with the church that John was dealing with, those who have left did not believe that Jesus had come in the flesh. And when you walk away from that absolute aspect of Christianity, you have walked away from God altogether. God comes in the flesh. And if we boil Christianity down to one idea that defines the rest, it comes down to this, that Jesus comes in the flesh because only in the flesh can he offer himself up as the at-wanting sacrifice for our sin. It's even more powerful than you realize if you just give it just a moment of thought. If we want to have a conversation about atonement, which is this huge uh, scriptural idea, we can jump into discipleship groups, and that's secondary. Or we can find a book to read, and that may be even tertiary. It wasn't that way for John. John wasn't having a secondary conversation or a tertiary conversation about atonement. We can Google and find books. We can join groups. John watched atonement take place. John stood at the foot of the cross and watched as Jesus was torn in two. He stood at the foot of the cross and watched as Jesus was beaten and as Jesus called out to God the Father. John watched as Jesus was taken apart to take the effect of sin Away from us. You see in verse 11 that we're looking, we're considering that we are a people who are loved by God, that love consists in this. We must, if you love God, if God loved you in this way, we must love one another. What's the way? The way that God displays love is through sacrifice. It comes to that. And when you read the word must, let's not do more work with it that needs to to be done. We all know what must means. It means you have to. You must live sacrificially if you are going to call yourself a Christian. Sacrifice is the funnel through which we understand every aspect of the Christian faith. In considering sacrifice, in viewing and thinking about atonement, We see that God's love laser-focused in on our greatest need. Your greatest need and my greatest need is to be reconciled to God. That is the result of Jesus coming in the flesh to meet our greatest need is that we would possibly, maybe, be reconciled to God. For the believer, you are assuredly reconciled to God. But even with the word reconciled, we've redefined it. We've misunderstood it. To be reconciled is not just to be reunited from separation. That's beautiful. I've watched it take place in airports. Maybe you've watched it happen in airports. A family gets back together. Someone's been out of town for three to four months. Dad sees his children from across the place. They run. Or when people post those videos on Facebook about when the dad comes back from the army and walks into the elementary school class and we're all weeping. That's awesome. But that ain't what reconciliation is. Reconciliation is more than that. Because when we're saying that, rec- when we are talking about reconciliation, we are not saying two people who love one another brought back together to celebrate their unity, to be reconciled is this. You were at war with God, and he canceled it. He put an end to it. God has canceled this. Because of this, our love for others should understand, we should understand it. Through reconciliation. Through sacrifice. And I know some of you are right now. We got people in our houses and people in our neighborhoods and people in our families that we are making sacrifices for. But because our love for others should recognize their needs, because God recognized your greatest need, and we should seek to maintain right relationship because it is only through the cross of Jesus that our right relationship is maintained. If we get rid of that, we've gotten rid of all of it. Because must means you have to. You just have to. You don't get to opt out. As much as we love to opt out of everything. 12. No one's ever seen God. This is an allusion to the gospel. It's an allusion to what John wrote in John in verse 18 of chapter 1 in the prologue the overview of the whole thing no one has ever seen God that's what John's saying yet again the one and only son who is himself God and is at the father's side he's revealed him for Jesus to be in the flesh is necessary because the rest of us are in the flesh we are human beings, finite beings, and Jesus took human finite humanity upon himself so that we would be recon- so that it would be possible for your reconciliation with God to take place. John knew at the cross and the empty tomb. He knew that. At the cross he watched as his as Jesus died and as he stood beside the mother of Jesus. He watched and, and when he got to the empty tomb when he outran Peter that he reminds us of we see the power and the purpose of love on display there John continues and says if we love one another God remains in us and his love is made complete in us if we love one another what we are seeing is that true love for other believers is evidence that someone knows God Love among the brothers. Love among the sisters. Love among the brothers and the sisters. We're bound to one another. And I know, like I get to be up here every week, and we spend time together, and I know lots of you guys are members of our church, and some of you aren't. And we can have conversations about it. We can put QR codes on the screen. But to serve as your pastor, and for our our pastors to serve as your pastors, and our elders to serve as your elders there is a sense of belonging that is expected. That we would choose to be part of something. Because all that I can really offer you at this point is good advice. And I don't even know if it's good half the time. But when we're members of a body, what we're saying is we're bound to what God intended with the church. True love for other believers is evidence that someone knows God. We are united with one another. We try our best to push you into groups with one another and maybe sit down in one-on-one coffee conversations with each other. We hope those happen or informally. We're praying that they happen uh, formally. We, we try to make that take place. The thing we'll find over and over in the Scriptures is the New Testament has no space for any type of maverick Christianity where you just do your own thing. There is the notion, and as that trickles down, that we're not just talking about you being part of the church as a whole. That's beautiful that God would make you part of the macro church. But I would encourage you to think about what it means to be part of a micro church. This little embassy that God has put together at 1027 Dixie Drive that meets every single Sunday, and we get together through the week, and we have meals together sometimes. I send you into life groups together. I would want you to be part of that micro church so that you would have a sense of belonging because if you don't have that, you are a step away from walking away at any point when somebody makes you mad because they disagree with you. Because you talk about love too much or you don't talk about love enough. Who's following up with you? I don't get to follow up and say, Hey, why'd you leave our church if you never belonged to it? The New Testament has no space for that. On top of that, the Old Testament tells us this is how you treat people. When the Old Testament gives commands, those commands are specifically about your relationship with God displayed through the way that you treat one another. It is through fallen human beings that God's love finds its fulfillment in this world. Do you see that? That the way that God has chosen in this time that we live, For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, that we are bound together by Christ Jesus, because of Christ Jesus, to be God's display of love in this world. John Piper says this, Love is the overflow of joy. He always talks about joy. Love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of other people. Well, if that's where love is from, what is it that love does? What does love... Do. Well, 13 and 6 through 16 say that shows that love reassures us. This is how we know that we remain in him and, and he in us. This is how you know. He has given us, he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his son as the world's Savior, or as the Savior of the world, your translation may read. To reassure us, God has given us His Spirit, and the Spirit of God works to redirect the lives of His people to honor His Son. Redirecting, moving us to be Jesus-glorifying people, Jesus-honoring people, Jesus-lifting people, Jesus-celebrating people. God moves us in that way. And we are assured that we are in Him because of what Christ has done in our place. The Holy Spirit of God moving us to see as we look into the Scriptures, this is what God would have me to do as someone who follows Him. Let's talk about the Spirit for just a moment. If you are a believer in Jesus, what we have promised to you is that the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. And the Holy Spirit of God is continually, consistently going to move you to to live a life that honors God according to His Word. If you are telling me that God tells you to do something that is in contradiction to the Scripture, that is not the Holy Spirit. That is enchiladas. The Holy Spirit of God works through His people and shows us what it means to live a God-honoring, Christ-glorifying life by the power of the Scriptures. So many of us as believers, we have forgotten the notion of the Holy Spirit, and we don't interact with the Bible, so we're just sitting around, spinning around all the time. The Holy Spirit of God is is at work in God's people. When you look at the phrase here, the phrase, Savior of the world, it's only used one other time in the whole of the New Testament. And John, again, is bringing us back to the idea of Christ crucified in the flesh. The fra- there it means that the sa- when we look into the woman at the well passage, it means that the salvation that Jesus offers extends beyond the Jewish people. That's what you see there. We see that when she goes to tell her whole town of who she has met with. Now, here, it's doing a different work when John uses the phrase. It's pointing out that the world needs a Savior at all. Let me rephrase that. Let me remind you and reiterate that. When John uses the phrase in the gospel... She's running to town to tell people that there is a Savior that is for more than the Jewish people. Here, he is pointing out to a people that the world needs a Savior to come in the flesh at all. At all. Fifteen, we see this. Whoever confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe that, that, God, that the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. This is confident reassurance of the absolute work of God on our behalf in the person of Jesus because God wants us to be reassured that he is for us. So when we have people who wonder all the time, if they're a Christian, even though they came to know Christ when they were 12, 13, or 14, it, it's because they're missing the ways that God has aligned our souls with him. We're aligned by his spirit. We're aligned through his word. Secondly, we see that, the love, that what we see in this passage is love removes fear. 17 and 18. In this love is made complete with us. So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. That's really tricky wording that we see in this translation. So let me help you with what the NIV says. In this world, we are like Jesus. God you want you to know that as someone who follows after him in a world that is full of judgment that you can be confident to live in the face of that because He has made it so that you would represent Jesus to the world. And we can know that we can face judgment without fear because of Jesus. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love is going to do a unique thing to fear. It's going to drive it out. It's going to push it out. Because fear involves punishment. So the one who feeds in love... In 19 through 21, we see this. Who is love for? We love because he loved us first. We love because he first loved us. When we read this phrase, it should do a number... On our reason for not loving people who are difficult. We do not love because we are promised a positive response. We do not love to advance personal agendas. We do not love because people are lovable. Let's be transparent sometimes people are not even likable. We love because He loved us first. He loved us initially. We are to love those who are far from the Lord. And we are to love the brothers and sisters that act like they're far from the Lord. Because He loved us first. 20. If anyone says... I love God and hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So you've got love and you've got hate talked about in the Bible and they're they're pretty uh, well-discussed concepts. Of the two... Only one of them needs to be active. Only love needs to be active. Hate functions just fine in the passive. Hate can function without it having to do anything because of the broken nature of our world. And it is much easier for us to lean into hate because of people not being likable than any of us realize. In the words of Michael Scott, it is easy for us to be satisfied with a life of why are you the way that you are? Love is going to help us to find out why. It is so easy not to love one another because one another's can drive us crazy. When I go to the grocery store or to Target or to the Walmart and I notice bad parking, it does something deep inside of my soul. And it's more here than almost anywhere I've ever been. I think because engineers paint a line, and no one's told you they were crooked. When I first moved here, I had a couple of trips. It was 2017, and, and Jared introduced me to this place called well, let me show you some of these parking spots, jobs I'm talking about. Well, one is, is this. like, like you, maybe you've been here. Uh, anybody ever been by this person? That you just pray for. <laughs> or maybe you, you've met this guy. I don't know why we blurred out that license plate. We shouldn't have done that. We should all know who that person is. It's always the Mercedes. Every now and then you'll see a RAV4 parked like that. Or maybe you've got like this teenage girl that I uh, read about in her parking job. Here we go with another one. Jared introduced me to the, some things about Texas when I moved here. The first was, since you live outside of Houston, don't fly to Dallas, that's just dumb. You shouldn't drive there either. That's a 27-hour drive. I don't even know how the math works on that. you can be in New Hampshire. And, and you should also use the, the parking spot When you go to Hobby Airport, don't go to Intercontinental. That is also dumb. If you are a person who likes to fly out of IAH, why do you hate yourself? (laughs) I like the parking spot two better than the parking spot one because it's closer even though the math doesn't really add up. The only bad part about the parking spot is there are no lines. It's simple barbarism when you get there. It's every man for himself. They all park crooked, like really more like one, sometimes like two. I got there the other day. I had a reserved spot. And they said, we don't have any spots here. I said, I don't know how that works, but I need you to tell me how to get in here right now. But they park crooked. You go in and, and you begin to look at the car and you loathe them and you're not real fond of their children either. You're just looking at that car thinking to yourself, why in the world would a person park just like that? That's terrible. We... What we don't realize is, what we've not thought through is, we don't know why. And some of those cars have been there for days, and some of those cars got there, and on day one, when they pulled into that place, there was another crooked car. So in order to get into the spot that they're in, they had to park crooked too. All you know is the day that you're there and all that you get to see is what's there when you're there. You don't see everything that took place to get that car to the way that it's parked right now. You don't know if they really did their best to park as best as they could. You have no idea. You don't know how many crooked parkers led to their crooked parking. You have no clue. We don't see it. We don't understand it. We don't know what took place for those cars to get the way they are where they are when you get to them we're not talking about cars we're talking about people and for every scenario in our lives where we look at someone and they drive us insane you don't know what took place in that person's life to make their life display itself to you the way that it does You don't know what their mom and their dad were like if they had a dad and a mom. You don't know what their boss said to them when they were young. You don't know what happened in the church to cause them to see the church the way that they do. We don't realize... What caused a person to be exactly the way that they are? Now, I'll be transparent. I believe there's a fine line between circumstance and excuse. But even in that, I don't control that. We have all these reasons that people drive us crazy. Chad, they're just so sinful. You go to work and you're over there engineering, the best engineering you can, operating the best operator you can operate. You're a believer in Christ and there are people who claim to be believers in Christ but they don't really act like believers in Christ or talk like believers in Christ. Or maybe they don't want anything to do with Jesus. It's just such a sinful place, I don't want to be here. Why in the world would I be here? They function so sinfully. The scriptures say that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. They're just ungodly. I mean, you know, you should have heard the way that they were talking about fill in the blank Romans five. Christ died for the ungodly, which includes you. But that person, that believer, that he or she, they're a dum-dum. They don't seem to function in ways as if they're wanting to follow after Jesus. Have you tried to bridge any gap whatsoever to help them to, to some type of spiritual awareness? Because maybe, just maybe, if you did, they would bring some type of spiritual awareness in You. 21, we've got this command. The one who loves God must also love his brother and his sister. Do you know who the commands in the Bible are for? Believing people. can you be obedient to a God that you hate outside of something miraculous taking place? The judge taught us that love builds bridges. What else does love do? Sacrificial love is going to tear down walls. And that's where Jesus is taking us here because this is the way. Sacrificial love opens doors. Sacrificial love gets over itself. Sacrificial love seeks to disciple Sacrificial love makes enemies our family. We were born in opposition to God and in opposition to one another. And the only hope for spiritual movement, progress, is what Christ has done in our place. So if we want to know what it looks like to love, we see that we find that in Jesus. And I would encourage us as a believing people in every one of those moments where people are wearing you out and driving you crazy and making you tired. And I've got a list of those people in my life to do everything I can to fight against my truth being my understanding of absolute truth. Because absolute truth is this is the truth way this is what love looks like and if my love doesn't look sacrificially then it doesn't look like jesus and yours doesn't either no matter how pretty of a picture you happen to be painting love that doesn't look like jesus isn't loving at all so here's what i want to invite us to do this morning i want you to bow your heads And we're going to come to the table in a moment and just be reminded of what God has done to meet with us. We're going to be reminded of what it means for him to offer that we could be at one with him. We're going to to meditate on that and celebrate that and consider that. If you're in this space and you've never trusted Christ, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. And he offers you a relationship with himself. You don't have to put on any airs or anything. Jesus wants to meet you where you are. But if you've not trusted Christ in a personal relationship with Jesus where you've realized that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, then I would ask you just not to take of the bread and drink of the cup today. It's not for you. If you're a believer in this room, whether it's a believer and a member of Grace Bible or you're visiting with us or you've been a believer for a while, if you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to the table today to be reminded of this is what love is. This is, where love, this is how we understand it. Broken body, shed blood of God. God the Son in our place. Father, we thank you for today. For your word pray that you will move in our midst. We ask all this in Christ's name. I'm in the back right hand corner of the moon room if I'm needed.